Hello, and welcome to the podcast, An Intelligent Look at Terrorism. I'm your host, Phil Gursky, President and CEO of Borealis Threat Risk Consulting in Ottawa, Canada. China has been in the news an awful lot lately for a whole bunch of different reasons. Uh, we here in Canada, of course, are seized with this notion that the government of Xi Jinping has decided to uh, seize two Canadians illegally. That we call them the two Michaels, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor, in retribution for Canada's decision to arrest Meng Wanzhou, who's the chief financial officer of Huawei, on allegations by the Americans that she was involved in uh, getting around Iran sanctions. This is a huge bilateral incident for Canada and China, by the way. China's also been in the news because of what's happening in Hong Kong lately. A recent border war with India has risen up for the first time in decades with casualties on both sides. What they're doing in Tibet, the whole, what's called, the Chinese call their, their One Belt, One Road initiative, which is building infrastructure around the world in countries that really can't afford it. And the fear is that China is essentially trying to establish facts on the ground around the globe that it can seize, that it can take back to sort of expand its empire, if it will. And another issue that has sort of come to the fore of late, which doesn't, is getting a little more attention, but perhaps not as much as it should, is what China is doing in the northwestern province of Xinjiang, what it calls the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region, or XUAR, I guess is the acronym. Bottom line is uh, China has decided that uh, all Uyghurs are terrorists, and as a result, it's going to incarcerate most of the population. And what they euphemistically call it, only a communist regime can say this, you know, vocational camps. And there's all kinds of uh, human rights violations that are taking part in, the, in that area of the world. I've written about it a little bit in my uh, third book, uh, The Lesser Jihads. But I've decided to bring in somebody who knows a lot more about this situation than I do to sort of weigh in on what China is doing and how it is justifying its policy under the so-called war on terrorism. So I'm delighted to have Professor Sean Roberts with me today. He is an associate professor at George Washington University, uh, of course, in Washington, D.C. And he, more importantly, he is the author of a book that's hot off the presses from Princeton University called The War on the Uyghurs, China's Internal Campaign Against a Muslim Minority. So Professor Roberts, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Let's start with, let's go back to first principles for a lot of people who don't know a lot about the Uyghurs. By the way, I should mention to my audience that you actually speak and write Uyghur. That's correct, is it? Yes, yes, that is correct. Uh, th that's quite impressive. I, I was a linguist, uh, both when I worked in Sado's Intelligence and I taught linguistics an undergraduate for 15 years. And I know Uyghur is a, is a Turkic language. It's an Altaic language and not that easy to learn. So as an aside, can I, can I just uh, ask how it is that you were able to pick up Uyghur? Yeah, well, I mean, it, I began by learning Uzbek, um, which is very closely related to Uyghur. Um, and there are some resources in the U.S. when I was in graduate school to study Uzbek. I also studied in Uzbekistan, uh, took Uzbek lessons there. And then uh, when I started doing my dissertation research in, in Kazakhstan, um, I took Uyghur lessons there as well and lived with the Uyghur community. And, and actually, you know, uh, everybody learns languages differently, but I, I learned it uh, particularly through uh, living with the community and speaking daily with them. You know, I think I, I picked up much more that way from, uh, than from the, the lessons per se. 
Oh, that's a remarkable achievement. I, I'm really quite impressed. I, I did a bit of Turkish myself years ago. And as I said, I, I see things as a, from a linguist perspective. And I know how challenging that should say Turkish languages are. So kudos to you for picking it up. So so the first question, Professor Roberts, is a very basic one. Uh, who are the Uyghurs and why has this issue come to the fore in the in much more from a global perspective over the last you know decade or decade and a half or so? Well, so, you know, as you mentioned, uh, the Uyghurs are Turkic people, and they really share much culturally and linguistically with the people of the former Soviet Central Asian states, um, especially with the Uzbeks, whose language is, is basically mutually intelligible. Um, you know, they, I guess if you uh, study the region of Central Asia, you know, the uh, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, uh, it's almost it's almost natural to also include the Uyghur area because uh, historically there were lots of uh, back and forth between these people um, and linguistically and culturally, um, they really share a lot more than uh, the Uyghurs do say with the Han in inside China. Um, there's about 11 million Uyghurs inside China Um Primarily, uh, as you mentioned, in the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region, or the XUAR, um, they they Uyghurs view this region as their homeland, um, and the, and twice in the 20th century they established proto states in parts of the region, both of which were called the Eastern Turkestan Republic, and so uh, some Uyghurs will refer to this region as Eastern Turkestan. Uh, others will uh, generally try not to use the the name Xinjiang because that means new territory, which kind of belies uh, the fact that this is not um, naturally a part of China. Well, I didn't know that Xinjiang meant new territory in Chinese. That's fascinating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, uh, so that reason, you know, you'll hear uh, some Uyghurs will just call it the Uyghur region. Uh, in my book, I try to not use Xinjiang uh, unless it's being used in terms of, you know, the administrative official name of the region. So I, I call, call it either the Uyghur region or the Uyghur homeland. Um, and, you know, since the Arab conquest of Central Asia, most Uyghurs have been Muslim and most today identify as such. However, the practice of Islam in the in the region is quite eclectic. There's a lot of influence of Sufism. Um, you know, I think um, within the Uyghur community, there's a variety of ways of uh, practicing Islam. Uh, and, you know, there's many Uyghurs who view Islam more as a cultural identity than a religious faith. You know, it's not uncommon to find Uyghurs who uh, drink alcohol or eat pork. Um so it's 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 uh as you might as you might uh guess you know being far from the center of islam uh it has its its own kind of history of of religion um mm -hmm. No, no, I was going to say that that strikes me as very similar to what we see in Indonesia being very far from the, the birthplace of Islam in the, in the Arabian Peninsula. Indonesian Islam historically has also been rather eclectic, uh, also heavily Sufi influenced. Would it be fair to say, Professor Roberts, then, that fundamentalism is not one thing one would normally associate? And I'm, I'm overgeneralizing here, but yeah. that fundamentalism is something that one would not normally associate with the practice of Islam in uh, East Turkestan? 
Yeah, yeah, no, it's certainly not really a a, a major part of the history of um, the Uyghurs. In fact, I would say that uh, you know Uyghurs were always very far from uh, the major kind of uh, trends in Islam globally. Um, one of the one of the things I note is that you know some of the political Islam in the Uyghur region actually owes itself more to a reformist movement uh, in Central Asia during the 19th century than it does to the kind of more recent ideas of, of fundamentalism. And, and, you know, uh, I think this is a, this is a important issue because it's, um, you know, people sometimes are looking for fundamentalism in expressions of Salafism uh, among Uyghurs, you know, you it's very difficult. You may find people who uh, adopt certain uh, practices related to Salafism, but that they may not themselves identify as Salafists, and they may simultaneously have other practices related to different um, different tendencies in in Islam globally. Uh, so, yeah, it is. I think that you know this is true about Islam in Asia. Uh, in general, as you mentioned, Indonesia, Central Asia, uh, and and elsewhere as well, Malaysia even. Okay, so f- just for my listeners who aren't as familiar with the term Salafism, this is a, a sort of a, a, a back-to-roots movement that developed really sort of in the middle of the 18th century, where there were a group of people in the Arabian Peninsula that thought Islam had lost its way and, and needed to go back to what they call uh, uh, Aslaf al-Salih, which are the sort of the faithful an- ancestors. And this is one thing that has driven in part, not totally, but in part, the move in Islamist extremism in the, in the 20th, 20th, 20th and 21st centuries. So if if the Islam practice, practice in uh, East Turkestan is not something that one would normally associate with a problem, i.e., leading to possible terrorism. Why does China think it has a problem in that part of the country? What, is, what has driven the Chinese government to take these extraordinary measures uh, up to and including a mass incarceration, the complete almost extirpation of the Uyghur culture and the, the sort of banishment of Islam as a practice? Why has China gone down that road? Well, I mean, I think that... Um... It's an interesting question because I, I view, and I, I, I outline this in my book, I view uh, what's happening to the Uyghurs inside China right now really being about um, the Chinese state's integration of the Uyghur homeland. It, you know, it's a, a lot of uh, what's happening to Uyghurs uh, is reminiscent of what happened to Native Americans, you know, both in the U.S. and Canada. Uh, in the 19th century, when um, uh, both the U.S. and Canada kind of expanded their their reach westward, um, you know, so you have uh, uh, you know basically mass internment, forced uh, assimilation measures, boarding schools, um, and I think this is really at the heart of what's happening to these people. Um, you know, there's very much an attempt to kind of erase their community, their social capital. And at the same time, erase any signs of their cultural links to the land, because um, I think for uh, the Chinese state, the 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 main objective is to integrate the Uyghur homeland as kind of a generic part of a monocultural China. Um, but I think I think the terrorism um, 
you know, justification for what's happening uh, makes a lot of sense from the Chinese perspective in the context of the global war on terror. Um, now, you know, there, there's, there is a, um, an article that came out this year that was kind of a high-profile uh, article by a group of political scientists in the Journal of Inter International Security that was trying to say, well, you know, the Chinese state sees this as a terrorism problem. The international community should be engaging them um, from that standpoint uh, as a terrorism problem. And I kind of disagree with that because I question whether the Chinese state really thinks it has a terrorism problem um, or even if, uh, even if it does, whether uh, what they're defining as terrorism is the same thing that we would define uh, as terrorism. So one thing that we see in China is for, oh, I guess uh, since the late, even even since before 9-11, this started to happen uh, early in the 2000s, China started talking about um, what they what they term the three evils, uh, terrorism, extremism, and separatism. Mm -hmm. And they kind of paint these three uh, alleged threats to society as being one in the same. So um, if you look at, uh, you know, separatism could be viewed as any signs of uh, an interest in self-determination, whether peaceful mm -hmm. or through armed struggle. Extremism becomes any sign of religious practice not approved mm -hmm. by the state. And terrorism is any sign of violence, whether it's premeditated or not, politically motivated or not, or targeting civilians or not. And so from that standpoint, I think, you know, for the Chinese state, their, their biggest concern is any Uyghur calls for self-determination. And in this kind of rubric of the, the three evils, they can paint that as a terrorism threat. I'm really fascinated by, by hearing you say that because a couple of things came to mind while I was listening to you. One is that this is very analogous to what they've been doing in Tibet, you know, since the 1950s, trying to erase any trace of Tibetan culture, of course, and any sort of, you know, religious practices they don't like. I, I also found it fascinating that China is not the only country that has exploited the so-called global war on terrorism, a term that I have railed against since President Bush you know, used it in 2001 after the 9-11 attacks. Russia's done the same thing. Many countries have said, oh, we're just doing this because these guys are all terrorists. Mm -hmm. So you do push back on this notion that you know, it really isn't a terrorism problem. And yet it, it seems to me, based on my knowledge, and it's not as deep as yours, that in fact, there have been acts of terrorism that have been carried out in China by Uyghur, what I would call Uyghurismist extremists. There are at least two terrorist groups that I think are related, if I if I read your book correctly, the East Turkestan Islamic Movement, or ETIM, and the Turkestan Islamic Party, or the TIP, uh, both of which I believe have actually sent fighters to go fight with ISIS in Iraq and Syria. I believe there are also Uyghurs fighting in Afghanistan. So what would be your response be to the the contention or the counterclaim that pushing aside whether or not China's response has been proportionate, I don't think it is any more than you do, that there really is a very small element within the Uyghur population in East Turkestan, in the uh, XUAR, 
that truly have carried out acts of terrorism and that there really are terrorists amongst the, that population? Well, so I think, first of all, you know, um, I feel that the the problem with the global war on terror and, and how it's facilitated this kind of um, use, you know, kind of like political weaponization by various states is that it doesn't define what is a terrorist or what is terrorism. Um, you know, I, I, in my introduction to my book, I make a, a case for a uh, specific definition because I do think, you know, uh, terrorism is a problem, but uh, it's become conflated to uh, any sort of political Islam um, which is, you know, one very uh, racially and ethnically profiled or religiously profiled to Islam, and two doesn't get to the the core problem of terrorism. So I, I define terrorism as premeditated political violence that deliberately targets civilian populations. Um, you know, I think that that um, is a definition that. Um, basically holds non-state actors accountable to the same um, the same regulations, the same kind of norms that states are held to in conflict. Uh, you know, it's, it's a war crime to kill, to deliberately target civilians in war. And um, that, I think, is what's reprehensible about terrorism is, you know, innocent civilians getting caught up in what might be a political conflict that um, whether you... you you deem it a legitimate conflict or not, you know, it's a, it's a conflict and um, it should not involve um, targeting uh, innocent civilians with violence. So from that standpoint, I do not see um, there being a, a, a very substantial um, terrorist threat at all from Uyghurs inside China. Uh, the story of ETIM that I tell in the book is of a very small group of, of Uyghurs in Afghanistan who came to the country uh, during the late 1990s who wanted to launch an insurgency in China to liberate the Uyghur homeland from Chinese rule. But it was completely inconsequential and never succeeded in mounting any militant action. And while these Uyghurs were inspired by Islam, uh, you know, they were not proponents of global jihad. In fact, they, the, my research suggests that they had very strained relations with both the Taliban and al-Qaeda. Um, and, and to some degree, it seems that the Chinese state uh, was able to uh, come to an agreement with the Taliban at that time to make sure that this group was immobilized, could not really carry out any acts of violence. Um, but, you know, one of the important things in this story is that the U.S., well, first, the, the, the People's Republic of China immediately after 9-11 mounted a huge public relations campaign at the international community to recognize uh, basically any Uyghur political movement as a terrorist group uh, connected to Al-Qaeda. And, and this mostly fell on deaf ears. Um, but in 2002, the United States recognized this group, ETIM, which never called itself that, as a terrorist organization. And it helped China get uh, the UN to list the group on the so-called consolidated list of the UN Security Council 
Um, and there, while there's no smoking gun to prove this fact, um, I think most people at the time and, and still consider this act by the U.S. Uh, kind of a quid pro quo to make sure that uh, China was acquiescent to the U.S. invasion of Iraq, which was already being uh, mm -hmm. planned at that time in the summer of 2002. Mm -hmm. um, so, so I don't really see this group um, as being a terrorist threat, you know, it was uh, kind of a, I guess, uh, uh, a proto-militant group that never got off, got off uh, the floor in, in carrying out any acts of uh, insurgency. Um, and it basically disappears in 2003 when uh, the Pakistan military kills its alleged leader, Hassan Massoum. Um, shortly after that, you start to see another group, which you mentioned, the Turkestan Islamic Party, or TIP, uh, emerge, um, and it really starts uh, becoming well-known uh, in 2008 because it produces some videos threatening the Beijing Olympics in 2008. Um, but my research suggests that this group was a handful of Uyghurs who had likely joined foreign forces supporting Al-Qaeda and the Pakistan Taliban in Waziristan at this time and um, were given, uh, you know, a video equipment and um, was producing a lot of propaganda, but was really had no capacity to do anything inside China. I, I, I think we're probably going to agree uh, on, on much of this. I, I certainly have been saying for years that a lot of countries, uh, including uh, United States and China, have certainly, uh, I think, uh, over-exaggerated the threat from terrorism, uh, whether it's internally mm -hmm. or in other countries. I think that's that's certainly true. And yet, there's no question, at least in my mind, that there have, in fact, been uh, what I would call, I think what anyone would call, uh, acts of terrorism in China carried out by uh, Uyghurs. Uh, and, of course, I think the most famous one, which you do cite in your book, is the, the Kunming uh, train station attack mm -hmm. in March of 2014, in which you know over 30 people died and close to 150 were wounded by knife-wielding people who, as I said, I believe were, were Uyghurism as extremists. Having said that, and that's not the only attack. There have been a few in China mm -hmm. over, over the, in the 2010s. So we have a situation where there definitely is a, a perhaps, as you put it, a small handful of individuals who've been radicalized to violence and are carrying out acts and what they what they see to be the furtherance of either Uyghur nationalism or Islamist supremacy, whatever you want to call it. So having said that, and 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 you know, push back if you think you need to, mm -hmm. why was it that or is it is it sort of I'm asking a, a silly question in saying that China has used a few incidents here and there to overgeneralize the problem to justify its actions in the in the XUAR. Yeah, I, I mean I think that that is the case. And I think, you know, I think one one of the things um, you know, it's kind of an academic uh, argument. Does the state really believe it faces it has a terrorist threat or not? Or um, an existential threat as as I say often yeah, put it. Yeah, yeah. And and um I think that, you know, there's probably uh, plenty of bureaucrats who've, who've kind of um, bought into that narrative and believe it entirely. But I have, a, I have difficulty believing that 
um, the central state apparatus, apparatus of China believes that, um, just given that, you know, you would assume that Chinese intelligence is well aware of the extent of a threat. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, it's my interpretation that, as you mentioned, you know, about 10 years after the U.S. recognized uh, the existence of an alleged Uyghur terrorist threat, we have about... I would say maybe four to five uh, violent acts allegedly carried out by Uyghurs that look like terrorism by my definition. They they target civilians. Um, there was a whole bunch of violence before that, which are really much more like clashes between Uyghurs and security forces. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have a couple of these acts that I would categorize as terrorism. But it seems that they don't actually have any... Uh, direct connection to these groups abroad. Oh, interesting. Okay. You know, they're more lone wolf attacks, you know, which I think is something that needs a lot more attention uh, in, in kind of the counterterrorism industrial complex. You know, I mean, it's, it's uh, there's, there's people who are frustrated by any number of, um, potentially legitimate grievances who, who end up taking up arms, you know, and, and attacking civilians. Uh, and that seems to be what, what we saw in China. Um, and yet, you know, the, the, uh, the groups abroad would applaud these acts of violence, but they would never claim responsibility for them. Um, you know, which I think is, is interesting. And I think the Chinese state was very aware of that. And so, the Chinese state was, if anything, it was concerned that these videos were getting in the hands of Uyghurs and, and inspiring Uyghurs to violence. Um, but that's also hard to believe given the extensive internet controls that China has had. Um, but I do think that, um, you know, it, it's a convenient, um, it's a con- convenient narrative uh, to use as a justification to attack uh, a population that's within your state. You know, as you said, a lot of uh, what the Chinese state wants to do with the Uyghur homeland is very much like what it wants to do with Tibet. Um, but the the measures are much more extreme in uh, the Uyghur region because the Uyghurs are Muslims and much more easier to uh, paint as terrorists. Uh, these are really, these. Are, I, I like the way you put that, Professor Roberts. I think that, you know, for a lot of people, uh, Islam is almost synonymous with terrorism. I, I'm constantly fighting back against this notion in my social media that people say essentially that all Muslims are potential terrorists down the road. So if we, we, we've, we've agreed that there have been a, you know, a couple of attacks here and there in China, which certainly would meet the definition of, of terrorism. And I share your frustration. A, a colleague of mine in the Netherlands, Alex Schmidt, a few years ago, looked at how many definitions of terrorism there are, and he stopped at 200. So we can see how difficult this is a term to sort of get, get, get our heads around. So we have a, a, a very small problem. As you stated, it's, you know, to say it's existential is a joke. You, you rightly cited the size of the Chinese security forces, their control over social media, social, this, the, over the Internet. So there's, you know, th- these guys are, there's no way in hell these Uyghur extremists are going to have any real impact on the situation in China. And yet the Chinese response has been catastrophic. 
for the Uyghurs. Now, you use the term cultural genocide in your book. I wonder if you would sort of expand on that notion. Sure. Yeah. You know, um, it, what, what we're seeing, as I mentioned uh, kind of at the outset of our conversation, is very much what we've seen indigenous peoples or First Nations, as you call them in Canada, um, have suffered uh, historically at the hands of settler colonialism. So, uh, you know, the, the, the headline-grabbing aspect of what's happening are these mass internment camps um, where... No, they're, they're, they're schools, they're educational centers. You've got the term wrong. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, but you know, they, so they've, they've extra legally put, you know, um, up to 10% of the population in these camps. And then they have, uh, a massive surveillance network that is really cutting edge. I mean, um, it's, it's very frightening. In fact, that even before information emerged about the camps, there were lots of journalistic pieces about the mass surveillance in this region, um, that uh, is using all kinds of artificial inte- intelligence and so on is very Orwellian and, um, you know, is, is immediately strikes fear in anybody who is worried about uh, the power of technology today. Um, and so the combination of that surveillance and the punishment, of, you know, random punishment of being sent to a camp means that you get essentially... Um, a manufacturing of consent. You know, any Uyghur who uh, does not acquiesce to state policies um, has the, you know, the likelihood that they're going to be either put in a camp or directly in a prison. And that's allowing the state to do all kinds of things that have been less highlighted in the media in terms of destroying Uyghur villages um, putting uh, Uyghurs in residential uh, labor communities, um, you know, f- residential factories, putting children in um, in uh, uh, residential schools, starting as early as kindergarten, where they're only taught um, the Chinese language, and um, basically erasing any sign of of the Uyghur. Um, legacy in in their homeland, with the exception of things that might be useful for tourism. So, um, you know, you really see uh, kind of the wiping out of this population. And the fear that's created is also uh, breaking down any sense of community because, you know, people are, are worried about being turned in by their neighbors or being overheard discussing something that um, might end up sending them to a mass internment camp. So, um, you know, it's it's really very much targeting, uh, I think, Uyghur identity and Uyghur culture writ large. Um, you know, and this is something, as I mentioned, we've seen a lot historically in terms of uh, First Nations that have been essentially wiped out. They, they continue to exist, um, but... Um, their power to exist has been severely curtailed. Um, so, you know, I use the term cultural genocide um, rather than just genocide to kind of uh, highlight that this is much more a story about uh, the destruction of an indigenous population than it is a story uh, akin to the Holocaust. 
Um, you know, and we, we haven't seen yet the mass extermination of Uyghurs, but certainly the, the policies that are taking, uh, being, being undertaken by the Chinese state are certainly reducing the population. There's also been information emerging about mass sterilizations. Um, there's an attempt to promote inter-ethnic marriage, which uh, if you refuse to take part in, uh, might send you to a mass internment camp. So there's really an attempt to erase these people as we know them. There have even been examples that the Chinese activities are not limited to China itself. We've, I've heard reports of arrests being made and deportations from Central Asia, where they're perhaps putting uh, pressure on governments to deport <clears throat> uh, Uyghurs they see as activists or people trying to push back. We have credible reporting here in Canada of uh, C- Canadian Uyghurs who uh, get uh, threatening text messages or phone calls, essentially saying, hi, um, how's your family doing back home? Click. So it's, in other words, it's a warning, you know, like, you know, just shut up with what you're saying. There was also a famous incident at a university a few years ago where a, a Uyghur activist was trying to uh, talk about the situation in, in the XUAR and was shouted down by people who were either in the pay of China or were put up to essentially prevent her from speaking. So I, I think that this this document, this documented, as you say, cultural genocide, is it's well known. Uh, been a lot of good reporting in, in Western media over the last few years. You've obviously studied this in, in quite quite some detail. Let me ask you a difficult question, Professor Roberts. Uh, why does the world not seem to care? Um, that's a, that's a very good question. Um, uh, I mean, I think the world. Um, does care, um, but you know, it, with anything, um, when we're looking at at global events, I think that you know, unfortunately, humanitarian crises that are far from home are um, low down on the list of priorities. I mean, we we, we certainly are seeing pushback uh, from the United States, from European countries, from Canada, um, but. Uh, Another problem is that uh, the power of China economically right now means mm-hmm. that that pushback is also, to a certain degree, limited. Exactly. Um, you know, I, I basically feel that states right now are unlikely able to influence this situation and change the behavior of the Chinese state. I think that um, there's a need for a more grassroots movement to, to really focus, you know, I, I think back to the anti-apartheid movement of the 1980s, where you could really um, see the impact of uh, global um, consumer advocacy, you know, in terms of trying to get uh, institutions to divest of companies that are entangled in this and uh, get um, people to boycott products that are coming out of this. Because one of the things we were finding is as the mass internment program has moved to a coercive labor program in residential factories, global supply chains are being infected with uh, this coerced Uyghur labor. And um, as a result, you know, I think that uh, a lot of global brands such as Nike and Gap um, 
are basically complicit in what's happening to the Uyghurs. And uh, that's a real opportunity, I think, for consumer advocacy, which is something that's becoming more popular, I think, in the world today and more powerful given the power of social media. You can really mount a campaign where um, uh, you'll see companies quickly try to uh, disentangle themselves from something that uh, is rightfully scandalous. But is it not true, Professor Roberts, that the you know pushing back against South Africa in the 80s against apartheid was more doable given the relatively small size of the South African economy? As you mentioned, I mean, you know, the Chinese economy is, I, I think, if I read my statistics correctly, if not the largest, uh, I think it's surpassed the United States, where it's very close to doing so. Mm-hmm. I, I'm old enough to remember when Made in China was a joke, yeah. when anything Made in China you would dismiss. Of course, you don't do that nowadays. So is there any realistic a possibility that that you know a grassroots consumer led boycott of chinese goods is going is going to have any effect well i mean i think that um i think that it requires um actions across the board um you know some of that also some of that grassroots advocacy is also about making sure that um states are responding to this uh you know one of the things that we've seen is so far the states that have um, responded to this issue with China are Western democracies. And the developing world has been um, noticeably silent. And in, and in particular, the Muslim world, which, um, you know, would have plenty of reason to look at this as essentially uh, anti-Muslim, uh, um, and basically a Muslim cultural genocide in China, mm-hmm. but um, they they have been very reticent because of the power of mm. China economically. And I think that, um, however, you know, even in more authoritarian states like Saudi Arabia and so on, if the population itself starts to get up in arms about it, the state is going to feel that it has to respond. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're, we're even starting finally to see, I think, some some movement in that in the Muslim world. Um, but certainly, you know, it's, it, I guess it's a, um, it's an unfortunate uh, commentary on humanity that uh, most genocides we've witnessed, um, certainly in my lifetime, um, the response of the international community has always been too late. Um, and one that does seem to be an unfortunate aspect of humanity. I'm, I'm so glad you raised the issue of Muslim states, which I, I find utterly shameful that they know exactly what's going on and have been kowtowed by the Chinese to say nothing. If, if because of economics, because of their participation in the uh, the Belt Road Initiative, I know, I know Pakistan, for example, mm-hmm. relies a lot on Chinese economic aid and for infrastructure, and so can't say anything to do that. If I could ask you sort of one last unfair question, Professor Roberts, where do you think all this is going with China's actions in the in the XUAR? Um, you know, in in uh, in my book, I I outline um, kind of a grim conclusion. I mean, I could I could very easily see that the Uyghur population within China uh, being completely marginalized within its homeland that. The, the region actually looks just like a generic part of um, China anywhere else in the country. And um, those Uyghurs who remain in the region, I mean, I could even see 
a situation that, um, you know, they essentially be become uh, isolated on something akin to reservations. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I, I, I see the conclusion to really be um, the same conclusion we've seen from cultural genocides elsewhere in the world. Um, now, that said, uh, one of the things um, I, I can say from having studied the Uyghur people for, you know, uh, at least three decades is that they're very resilient and uh, I can't see them letting that happen without any bit of pushback. And right now uh, it's almost impossible for Uyghurs inside China to push back because they can be immediately uh, neutralized, put in camps or prisons and and basically taken out of society. Um, But there is a significant uh, population of Uyghurs abroad and that population has has grown since 2009, when when there was really a ma- when the massive crackdown on Uyghurs inside China accelerated, um, and so a lot of people, you know, there about maybe as many as 30,000 from that period uh, came to Turkey. Um, also, a significant number um, have come to the U.S., Canada, um, Europe. Uh, and elsewhere, even in Southeast Asia. So I, I, I do see that um, the Uyghur population abroad is um, going to be pushing back on this uh, endlessly. And that, 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 you know, will at the very least ensure that um, there's some kind of reckoning for this mm-hmm. over the long term is my hope. I, I sincerely hope you're right. I, I, I don't disagree with you. This is a... Uh... I like your term cultural genocide, and I, I've had the opportunity to actually meet with some Canadian Uyghurs. I'm a, I'm a fellow at the Montreal Institute for Genocide Studies at Concordia University, and I've had a chance to talk with them. And I certainly agree with you that, uh, you know, there has to be some serious pushback and some serious consequences for Chinese action in what it's doing, not against, not just against the Uyghurs, but in, in Tibet and in Hong Kong as well. As I've been saying for a long time now, maybe this is my intelligence background showing through, you know, China's not our friend, and I wish we would stop pretending that it, it is so. Professor Roberts, this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation with you uh, on your book. Congratulations on its publication. Uh, if I may ask one last question, uh, where does your research take you next? Well, you know, actually, I... Um... I'm working on a book that uh, looks at um, just what we were talking about in terms of how the global war on terror has been used by different states uh, and and looking at that in comparative um, format, looking at the case of the Uyghurs and uh, the case of the Uzbeks and the case of the Chechens. Um, and, uh, I'm hoping to be able to kind of get to look more specifically how, um, these populations have ended up getting, um, entangled with the global war on terror. Um, and it, it, I, I do see this as generally being something of a self-fulfilling prophecy, you know, states, uh, isolate populations and, and, uh, basically accuse them of being terrorists. And as a result, you see uh, a lot of them finding refuge among extremist groups abroad. And um, I, I think this is an important, uh, it's an important thing to take note of because 
you know, although we sometimes forget it, the global war on terror is still ongoing and it's still creating uh, these same problems. You know, if you look at the, the, the groups, uh, the foreign fighters in Syria, they're not the same foreign fighters who were around in 2001. Uh, they're from other countries. They're from countries uh, where people have been suppressed um, and repressed in the name of counterterrorism. Uh, and it's something of a self-fulfilling prophecy that they basically can only find refuge among uh, extremists to uh, basically make that terrorist threat a reality. So uh, I, I, I want, you know, I, I kind of want that book to be a rallying call to uh, uh, hopefully end the war on terror as we know it. Uh, that doesn't mean that, uh, you know, we should stop, um, we should stop non-state actors from uh, targeting civilians, but um, it means that we really need to reevaluate what, what it means to um, combat terrorism. Well, you'll get no pushback from me as somebody who worked in counterterrorism for 15 years with the Security Service in Canada and who has written five books on Islamist extremism and religious terrorism. I couldn't agree with you more that, you know, and I, I've said this since the beginning, that the war on terrorism is one of the most ill-chosen terms in the history of ideas and has caused all kinds of problems. And uh, you're right, we have to do counterterrorism, but we don't have to, we don't have to frame it as a war on terrorism, because as someone very wisely stated just after 9-11, declaring war on common nouns is generally a very, very bad idea because they never end. And you've pointed out rightly that there's been many abuses by states such as China, such as Russia as well, in framing problems through that lens. So, Professor Roberts, I want to thank you very much for taking the time. I, and again, I, I, I congratulations on your book, which I'm looking forward to reading in, in much greater detail. And uh, thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. That was my conversation with Professor Sean Roberts from George Washington University and the, looking at the Uyghur problem in northwestern China and China's response to it. Let me know what you think. You can reach me on email, borealisrisk at gmail.com or on Twitter at borealisaves. You'll also find me on LinkedIn and on Facebook. If you like the content and want to get more, simply go to my website, borealisthreatenrisk.com. Hit the subscribe button, provide me with your information. You'll get a free digest, all podcasts, all blogs, free to your inbox every morning. I hope to hear from you. I'll talk to you again soon. Until then, stay safe. Stay safe.